for her. Um, another phrase that you would learn to ask as you're just shopping and, and living life is how much does it cost? If you're going out to purchase some, some bread or a tie, they, I don't know if they still sell ties on the subways there in Metro, but they're always just like a, a hundred for it, like a dollar or something. But one of the things you'd learn to ask is, you know, how much, how much does it cost? Because you want to gauge before you start paying for something as well. Um, and I don't know, for those of you who maybe come from another country here, you can remember learning the, the beginning phrases, you know, hello and how are you and what's your name and my name is. And then when you go out into other places, you know, how much does it cost? You have to, to learn to do that. And that's just the part of reality of living. And when we open up the Bible, there's a similar question that's asked. How much is this going to cost? Living out this faith. When Paul is writing to this young church in Corinth, we're seeing him a few years later when he'd gone into the city of Corinth and said, here's the cost of following Christ. And the people in the culture that day said, okay, we're in. A few years later, though, they haven't really been counting that cost. And he says, you're really immature. As we said already at the very beginning, this book is about growing up in your faith and going from immaturity to maturity. And along the way, there is a cost of getting to that point. And Paul talked about that last week just a bit. And now he's going to talk about it more in a very sort of practical way. Uh, he's talking about issues here that everybody comes up against at some point or another. How do we use our bodies? He talked about sexual immorality last week. So it's kind of racy stuff. But he lives in the real world, and he knows this is something that we struggle with. Today, he's going to talk about our pocketbooks. So he's a meddler. He's talking about money and what we, what we count as what matters more. The, is the bottom line for me getting the most I can get out of somebody else for money? Or is it the name and the cause and the sake of Christ? And for this Corinthian church... They were the kind of people who said one thing but lived in a very different sort of way. We saw what that looked like last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this week, he's looking at 1 Corinthians 6. So we're calling this the cost of living out our faith because he says there is something you need to calculate if you're really going to continue walking with the Lord. So let's take a look at this. The first thing that he says in verses 1 through 6, he says, look, if you've got a dispute to solve... You need to start inside the church, and here's why. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges, even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. Sometimes the Bible uses arguments that go from 
the lesser to the greater. This is the opposite. It goes from the greater to the lesser. In other words, if you're one day as a follower of Christ, and this is kind of looking back at Daniel chapter 7 and what happens at the end of time, and we're not really unpacking this notion this morning that you will sit in judgment over things, but there's a picture of God entrusting you as a follower of Christ as one who will judge even angels at some point. And if that's the case, you can't even solve a tiny dispute among yourselves. And he says this to shame them. He's like, why, why can't you do that? If you're going to be in charge of such a great thing, can't you do the little things now? And he's telling them that you need to grow out of your immaturity. There are people, wise people among you who can solve these disputes. And so that's where you need to begin. It's not that a non-believer, somebody who isn't a follower of Christ, can't resolve those issues. Of course they can. And in fact, Paul says there are structures put in place for this very reason. But the difference is your way of thinking about what this, what this dispute is about should be entirely different than that system. This is, this is what we call a worldview question, right? When, when you think about what matters most, what the things that drive you, what you value the most, if you are somebody who's identifying with what Paul says is the Christian body, your way of filtering through that is entirely different than somebody who's not in that frame of mind. In both cases, maybe there can be a sound judgment, but the way you're processing it, the things that matter the most just are different. And one of the things Paul's going to press on is to say, money doesn't matter the most. That's not what's the most important. And even he's going to say, being right isn't what matters the most. That's Maybe hard for some of us to hear who like to be right, which is probably you. I don't struggle with that in the least. And here he says, you are just, you're to be thinking differently about this. And isn't this one of the reasons why we get concerned when you think of categories like church and world and those who call themselves Christians and non-Christians is when those lines are blurred and people who say I'm a Christian look just like the world, they're, what's the difference that's what Paul says immaturity looks like. There are some real differences. And the starting point is different. That's why he began with the cross of Christ. You have all been saved by grace through faith. This isn't of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Nobody can boast. So when I come into a dispute, my starting point is different. And the way I move forward is different. But you're running straight to courts. And so you're showing that you're actually quite immature. And there's nothing different about it whatsoever. Those who claim Christ have an entirely different perspective on life. Or they ought to. Do you not know? Do you not know? He says that six times in chapter 6. And here again he says Christ's reputation is at stake. If you're running quickly to these courts outside the scope of God's gathered people, Christ himself, his reputation is, is at stake. So this, this does matter. If you've got a dispute to solve, start inside the church. And then he says, as he goes on, if you have a dispute to solve, you've got a dispute to solve, he says you might need to take the hit. Now, in other words, you might have to be okay with being wronged. That's what he says. 
in verses 7 and 8. The very fact that you have lawsuits among yourselves means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers. This practice of Christians taking each other to courts seems to be the way of the Corinthians at this point. And really, the whole Corinthian church seems to be kind of obsessed with two things. Um, my rights and judging others. That's kind of the, the way that they breathe, the air that they breathe. And that seems to be pretty common for our day as well, doesn't it? That dominates the church. My rights and I'm going to judge you. Asserting my rights, passing judgment on everyone else. That's what this Corinthian church is like. Almost exclusively concerned with their rights. And that's underneath what we may sometimes think of as well, even as believers. What's in it for me? What do I get? One of the ways this might translate even is to think, of, if it makes me feel good, then why, why wouldn't God allow it? I mean, that's all about me, what I get. And this idea that God just wants me to be happy is kind of there too because we can't imagine that he wouldn't want that. But as we've said before, maybe marriage, for example, isn't just for our happiness but also for our holiness. They think about life a little bit differently, different starting points. David Pryor says this about the Corinthian church. The combination of asserting my rights and passing judgment on everyone else is one of the most insidious tendencies in the church of God. Both evils should have been transcended through the redemption which is ours in Christ Jesus. Rights have, been, have given way to reconciliation and mutual responsibility. Passing judgment has been buried with Christ as one of the most destruct, as one of the most, sorry, Passing judgment has been buried with Christ is one of the most destructive, that is, yes, one of the most destructive and loathsome characteristics of our unredeemed nature. Whatever Paul had preached at Corinth about Jesus Christ and him crucified, these two cardinal lessons simply had not been received. So, rights have given away to reconciliation and mutual responsibility. Your rights, then, aren't the first thing that you're concerned about if you've really embraced the gospel. The gospel takes each, each of these things square on. Paul is preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. What about Jesus? Do you think he had rights as the eternal son of God? As the one who actually owned everything? And yet on the cross, what does he do? Lays them down. Not my will, but yours be done. Do you think he could have passed judgment on everybody? Because, frankly, he was sinless, right? So when somebody comes at him with some heat and says, hey, who do you think you are? You're the son of God? He could come back at them quite easily as well. In fact, he had every right to do so, but on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, the one who had the greatest rights of all and who could assert them and the one who had the right to pass judgment says, no, let that judgment be on me. And then, if that's the starting point for the gospel, which Paul says it is, because I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified, that's what it looks like. It starts trickling down to every single part of your life. 
So that when a dispute arises and somebody says, I have a legitimate case against you, and it's usually about money or power of some sort, the response in that case may very well be that you have to say, I would prefer to be wronged to reflect Jesus in the gospel and to avoid going to a place where people might be able to say, see, you guys are just a bunch of talk. You're absolutely no different than anybody else. In fact, you're worse. Because you say these things don't matter as much as they do to us, but I see that they matter just as much or more. And it breaks Paul's heart. Christ laid down his rights. And by virtue of him dying on the cross, we're all the same at the foot of the cross. And that's why Paul can say, forgive others as... In Christ, God forgave you. If you don't understand that, then you won't be forgiving toward others. You know, I was thinking of the parable of the unmerciful servant. You're familiar with that one. Some of you know what it's like to have a major debt in your life. Maybe you have a mortgage for a house or perhaps student loans still. I know people who are paying back student loans for years and years and years. And you can imagine if, if somebody... Maybe not the government, perhaps, but a person comes in and says, I am going to pay that debt in full. Say it's $100,000. It's just been like an albatross around your neck. Do you know how great it is? Have you ever had anybody erase a debt like that before? Any, any amount. It feels good, doesn't it, if you've had that? Or you're kind of imagining this morning, I think that might feel good, <laughs> what that might feel like. You know, when, when we first got our first mortgage, somebody who was a Latin expert told me that means death pledge, <laughs> apparently, as well. You feel like you're dying. You're giving away your life. And if somebody comes in and releases you of that, ah, oh, wow, that feels amazing. So in the parable of the unmerciful servant, somebody owes a million dollars, roughly equivalent. And he comes to the person and says, you're forgiven, and that person, can you imagine the feeling? It's gone. And then you run across somebody who owes you 20. And you say, pay up. That shouldn't be. And Jesus says, you have been forgiven this tremendous debt. So why do you go to this other person and say, you owe me X amount of money? No. Wouldn't it be better, Paul says, to be wronged? even if you're losing out on some money, even, even if maybe your reputation is, is possibly tarnished. You talk about the rubber hitting the road with the gospel. This is real, the real stuff. It's, it, it, and some of you may feel like, I've never been sued. I don't have anybody to take to court. And it may be the case. Maybe you don't. I've, I've been involved in situations where it has happened as well, between two Christians. And both feel they're right. And nobody's willing to lay down their sense of rights. Just can't do it. And you, and you scratch a little deeper, and this is true of my heart as well, what, what matters the most to you? Sometimes there's a cost. There's a real cost to living out our faith. And in this case, it's actually a financial cost. We're not even talking about metaphors here. It's real money. That you might be out. Why? For the cause of Christ. Because that's what the gospel might look like in this case. Perhaps this is a chance. 
not to consider what we might be losing, but how we've been given an opportunity to sacrifice something for the gospel. And what's gained in that process? So much of the gospel works this way. I feel like I'm sacrificing something, but I really gain something entirely different. You see, that is a radically different mentality. How might God be opening a door of opportunity to display the reality of the gospel, even when it hits the thing that matters most to us, money? If the gospel doesn't make us distinctive, what are we doing here, people? I mean, you know what? So I'm, I'm out. <laughs> I just don't. I didn't even want to be a part of it. I've never understood when I, when I went off to seminary the, the many, many pastors who will hold up God's word and say, I don't think this has any modern relevance. The miracles don't really apply. It was written a long time ago. Not entirely sure Jesus said these things. Like, what, what, are, what are you doing? What, what, uh, what basis are you getting up declaring anything whatsoever? But the same might be said of people who do receive it and then go live something completely different. Is it really working out in our lives? And when there's a cost attached to it, as we all know, that's when faith really shows up. This is why Tertullian said early on that the seed of the faith is the blood of martyrs. When there's a price and a cost attached to it, the gospel flourishes. And if there's not, oftentimes, and I've said this before, 313 for some people, some church historians say that was the worst day in church history. That's when Christianity became the official religion of the empire. And all of a sudden, it was convenient to be a Christian. Yeah, you, the voting block was right in your back pocket. And you could do whatever you want. You could influence everything. And all of a sudden, the cost of living out your faith didn't matter so much. There might be a time when you have to lay something down when there's a cost to living out your faith. It could, could be monetary. It could be something else. I'll bet there's an opportunity just in principle for you sometime very soon to say, I have a crossroads right now. I can lay down my rights and stop casting aspersions or judgment on this person and in this case, take a hit for the gospel. It could be a sharp word. It could be a defensive posture that you normally assume. But some opportunity will present itself to you and to me probably before the day is over to, to count the cost of living out our faith. Even if it's not necessarily financial. Although it possibly could be that as well. Paul says, look, you got a dispute to solve, you got to remember, not only that you need to take a hit, but as he concludes in the final verses, he says this, remember your real inheritance. If you're in the middle of something and there's a dispute, he's kind of come back. He was talking about sexual immorality in chapter 5 and this really strange case that we looked at, and he's headed that way again next week, come on back. 
And he's making a transition, but also a connection here between those two. Because he says, if you are in this dispute, then you've got to remember, again, what matters most. What's your real inheritance? Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Twice he uses that phrase, inheriting the kingdom of God. And as we noticed last week, as soon as we maybe cast judgment over a certain group of people, if we're honest, we're all in there. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Lawsuits are money-driven, but Paul is pointing them to a different kind of inheritance. He talks about the inheritance here. You're going to inherit the kingdom of God. And look, which one of us doesn't enjoy, since we're talking about money, the idea of receiving a nice inheritance? That somebody is leaving a windfall for you. Somebody maybe uh, grows to be 18 and there's money set aside and they get it. Others maybe have a relative who is deceased and they've written a will for you and you inherit something. And that enables you to pay off those debts that you owe, which we were talking about, or to do something else that you couldn't otherwise do. That's great. But Paul is saying the real inheritance here that you enter into full possession of is the kingdom of God. That's the real inheritance. You know, Peter was obsessed with this as well, at least early on in his writing to these people who were gathered. He says, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, not the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. There is an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. If you're a child of God, if you've said yes to Christ, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It doesn't matter what the stock market does or, or, or you know, whether, whether cryptocurrency goes up or down or who's in charge politically. It, it is locked and sealed, an inheritance for you. You will inherit that in full and complete. In Christ's resurrection, sealed it. He's the one who did it. That's why it matters so much. He accomplished it. It's done. It's finished. And now this is for you. And that's a great promise and a hope for those who physically die. I have an inheritance in heaven. But that kingdom of God, which does await some future fulfillment, has been inaugurated now. And it's primarily being worked out in you who profess faith in Christ in the way that you live your life. It's character-driven. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, humility, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek. It goes on and lists all these different qualities. That is what your inheritance looks like. It actually does have a a physical fulfillment, but now it's primarily character-driven. And that list that he provides here of those who were excluded from that inheritance is the same as the previous one that he talked about with a few extras added on. Maybe you caught those as well. 
And each one of these, if you were to unpack them, is a picture of a disordered desire. They're, they're desires that have gone astray in some way. They're disordered. They're not given either the, the proper placement or the proper expression. Each one of them. Something's wrong. And I started last week by giving the driving illustration for anybody who's interested in going out and driving and, and getting your license or whatever the case may be. And the basic idea, obviously, is that if you obey the rules of the road, you're free. You can go wherever you want. There are boundaries given not only for your protection but for the protection of everybody else around you. And this is exactly what God's law is like. He's given us, he cre- if in fact it's true, he created us, he knows how we function, he knows how we flourish. So when he gives us laws and he says, this is what it looks like, it's not just something he does to, to take away our independence and our freedom, it's actually because he knows that's where we flourish the best. And each one of these things is a disordered desire. The, the wrong expression of it in the wrong time and the wrong sort of way. And so you're not really experiencing the fullness of God's kingdom when you're actively engaging in that. That's not what your inheritance ought to look like. Henri Nouwen, who was a Catholic priest, well-written, somebody who had a great reputation, and as some of you know, at the end of his life, he went to work with people who were uh, disabled and, and, and couldn't even think normally. So when he came before them, he didn't have doctorates and degrees. He was just a person. It was very, disar- it was very hard for him because he'd built up a huge reputation. But it, all this great writing came from that experience as well. And he talks about like kind of what Paul is doing here when he talks about ministry in general, that this is part of what happens in our life. Ministry is a very con- confrontational service. It does not allow people to live with illusions of immortality and wholeness. If Paul's doing it right, if the Bible's doing it right too, it's going to dismantle the idea that you're, you know, just, you're immortal, you can do whatever you want, and that you're completely whole, you're fine without God. This is going to show you that's not the case. You're, you're lying to yourself. It keeps reminding others they're mortal and broken. But also... That with the recognition of the condition, liberation starts. The only way you can know the glorious freedom of the children of God is to recognize I'm in that list. And I'm at risk of inheriting the wrong thing. And what I love about this passage here for Paul is, if you caught that, he says in verse 11, and that is what some of you were. He's giving this list. He says, now that's what you were. Three times here in the Greek, he uses Allah, which is, I know it sounds very Muslim, but Allah in the Greek is but. You know, the conjunction, junction, what's your function? But you, you, but now, you were this, but now, you were this, but now, you were this, but now. When you, you were this, but not anymore, the triple Allah. You've got a completely new identification. You were dirty, but you've been washed. You were impure, but you've been sanctified. You were guilty, but now you're justified. That's who you were. That's not who you are. So stop acting like who you were and be who you are. That's what he's telling them. That's what immaturity to maturity looks like. Recognize it. Admit it. If you, 
If you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourselves and the truth is not in you. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's real freedom. On what basis can that be done? Is it because you're just great? You're better now? You're not as judgy as you used to be? And you're better at laying down your rights? The only basis for this is the is Christ and what he paid. I'm stealing thunder from next week, but Paul there says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Your life is so valuable that Christ laid it down, but he did lay down his life. There's a price attached to this. You're not your own, and you have an obligation now not to live to the sinful nature, but to live for God. This is what he wants the Corinthian church to remember. And he reminds them of that again and again and again. Come on, grow up. And one of the opportunities you have in a very practical way, anybody who says the Bible isn't practical, I think just hasn't read it. We're talking about sex and money the past two weeks. I mean, it doesn't get more practical than that. And how do you think about it? And what's underneath it? What is it that's driving you? Why are you making these choices? Come on, people, grow up. And realize that when you... Place your faith in Christ like this. You're bought at a price. And now, it's not that when he gives you these boundaries, they're for your restriction, they're for your freedom because there's no guilty conscience when you do what is right. And you don't know what that's like probably unless you have one. Can you imagine being set free from that? The debt and the weight and the burden that you bear coming out honestly with it and being hearing you're forgiven. That's in the past. Now look ahead to the future. That's what the gospel is all about. And that's what Paul is trying to call us to. And if there's any demonstration of that, it's in the Lord's Supper, so clearly demonstrated. And we're going to celebrate that here. If you want your children to be here for this, this is a great time to go get them. Cynthia uh, is there at the door. You can gather your kids back. She'll have them to, to be signed out. And then come in and check out what's going on. Uh, Father, we pray as we prepare our hearts to receive this Lord's table that we would see it as what it is. Really a, a table for saints who were sinners. And sinners who, because of Christ, are now saints. And the, the picture here of being washed by your blood is so clear. But also the call that is placed on our lives as we come humbly, as Jesus confronted the, the woman in adultery to go into sin no more. No wonder we need this on a regular basis. Because if we're honest, we're in this list that was read in one way or another. And yet, what a great news that we can be forgiven and washed and purified and clean. Thank you for a sustaining grace, one that we practice again and again and again because we need to know that we are forgiven. We long to become more like the Christ we serve and the one who is here today and who rose in space and time from the dead so that we could be right with God. So help us to be reflective in that respect. Shine the light in our hearts, the darkness of our hearts, and may we confess our sins to you. And as we receive your forgiveness to walk in newness of life, but don't, 
don't allow us to treat this lightly. This is a heavy institution. Paul even said some of you are sick because you're taking this improperly. So we don't want to treat this lightly. We pray that your spirit would be here at work showing us both the freedom but also the weightiness of coming to the Lord's table. So Father, examine our hearts and purify them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.